Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me, Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Podcast is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, December 9th, 2020, people. I hope everybody is having a great day in what has quickly become a very busy week across college sports, and it will be reflected in this show, which once again, so much to get into in such a short amount of time. We will open the show with some college football. Tuesday, a very, very busy day in college football. I do have a gripe with the college football playoff ranking. So we will lead the show with that very briefly. We will then talk about, of course, the biggest story probably in all of sports this week, the cancellation of Michigan-Ohio State, what it means for both schools, what it means for Ohio State as they pursue a college football playoff berth, as well as maybe even more importantly, a berth in the Big Ten championship game. We'll talk from Michigan's perspective what it means for Jim Harbaugh's future, wrap the college football segment with some quick Urban Meyer stuff because it is a story that I have not really talked about, but with Urban Meyer turning down Texas it very much feels like we may be seeing or we may have already seen the end of his coaching career and he may be on the sidelines forever uh, no matter how bad we want him back in the sport we will then of course transition to college basketball talk Duke Illinois dominant win for Iowa against North Carolina and just a busy fun day of college hoops in what is quickly becoming a busy fun time of year as the two sports overlap before we get started very briefly want to remind you please make sure that you are subscribed Subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars, leave a nice review on our iTunes page. Really does help us move again up those iTunes and podcast charts. Make sure you're following on all the social media platforms at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. And also, as I mentioned, uh, if you are looking for something, it is, of course, the holiday season, probably should preface with that, but if you're looking for something to get your friends, family, I am, of course, on Cameo. Cameo, for people who do not know, uh, I can send your friends, family, loved ones a personalized 
greeting, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, whatever you guys celebrate. Uh, But Cameo, it's a great service, and obviously I know that there's a lot of fathers and sons, friends, mothers and sons that listen to this show. So if you want to get a great gift for your loved one, find me on Cameo. I should also probably mention, by the way, I am working with a really cool watch company this holiday season named La Terrain. It's actually pinned on top of my uh, my Twitter page, at Aaron underscore Torres, La Terrain Quality Luxury Watches. And if you use the promo code Torres when you check out, or promo code Aaron, either one actually will work, uh, you save 10%. So check it out on my Twitter page, at Aaron underscore Torres, uh, because it's a really cool promo. It's a really cool gift idea for your loved ones this holiday season. La Terrain, the watch company, you can find it on my Twitter page, pinned to the top of my page, at Aaron underscore Torres. Uh, But yeah, with that said, people, no more time to waste. Let's get into it. And listen, I'm just going to say this. The biggest story in college sports right now is the Ohio State-Michigan cancellation. But I just want to take two minutes to do a spiel on the college football playoff rankings, which came out on Tuesday. And I got to be honest. I was not planning on talking about this situation because we do know the setup of the college football playoff, uh, and I talked about it on last episode. If Alabama wins the SEC, they're in. If Florida wins the SEC, them and Alabama are in. Ohio State is in if they win out, most likely. Uh, Notre Dame and Clemson probably going to get in, and if you're handicapping, it feels very much like it is going to be an Alabama-Notre Dame-Clemson-Ohio State playoff. But the reason I just want to talk about it really quickly is because of this. It's because sometimes in life, you know, you see a narrative that you're not really sure. Oh, people are saying this, but is it really true? But it's not really true. And what is actually the truth? And you know me. The one thing about me that you can always say is that I will never kind of like, you know, just just give in to a narrative and I won't believe a narrative if I don't believe it and if I don't do my own homework and do my own research and all that kind of stuff. But I do have to say, in watching the college football playoff rankings, in seeing how they were manipulated today, uh, on Tuesday, the college football playoff rankings, I do have to say this, and I do have to say that a narrative that has been talked about ad nauseum is very much coming true, and I am so disappointed in the college football playoff committee, and that is this. Group of five teams have no shot. They have no shot at making the playoff, and the system is actually rigged against them to go ahead and make the college football playoff. And if that sounds extreme, if it sounds like it's too much, if it sounds like I'm going overboard, just listen to what happened on Tuesday night with the new playoff rankings. So I I really have kind of stayed away from talking about the playoff rankings because for the most part, there hasn't been much to talk about. As I just said 30 seconds ago, if you look at the playoff rankings, you have a pretty good idea of who is going to be in the college football playoff and what needs to happen to get there. Alabama has a very linear path. Notre Dame has a very linear path. Ohio State, which we will talk about in a minute, I don't think it's as set in stone as some people think, but they got a pretty clear path. The problem is everybody else. And the problem is if you looked at the rankings on Tuesday, they were completely contradictory. They ran counter to everything that has ever been done. And it is very clear that the system is rigged against a group of five. And so let's get into it and let's talk about it in two specific instances. Let's start with the number seven spot because for the last two weeks, it has been Cincinnati. 
Now, in defense of the playoff committee, Cincinnati has not played since since the, the most recent rankings came out. They have a COVID issue. Their game this weekend has been canceled. So you can see the scenario where everyone's kind of like, eh, what's going on with Cincinnati? What does it all mean? Well, on this week, the committee decided out of the blue that they were going to move Cincinnati down a spot and punish them for not playing. In the process, they moved Iowa State up into the number seven spot for no particular reason. And so the reason this frustrates me is twofold, but I do think it proves my point that this thing is just rigged against the small schools. So let's start with Cincinnati, right? Because if you want to make the argument, okay, they they haven't played in a few weeks, they got a COVID situation, the schedule isn't tough as everybody else, okay, I can buy that no problem. I understand the circumstance, I understand they're not playing, and I do understand wanting to reward teams that are playing. Just one question, though. Why has Ohio State not moved from the number four spot? Ohio State has played five games, which we're going to get into in a minute, because the game against Michigan is canceled, which we will talk about, and their spot in the Big Ten Championship game is very much at risk. But if we're going to move Cincinnati down a spot for not playing and punish them, shouldn't we be moving Ohio State down too? They've played five games all year. That's half as many as Notre Dame has played. That's half as many as Clemson has played. I don't think this team is very good, but Miami has played nine games. Oklahoma has played nine games. Coastal Carolina has played 10 games. Ohio State is stuck at number four without playing half the games that everybody else has played or the vast majority of teams have played. And it's very clear. There's a reason that Ohio State, by the way, is in at number four. It's partly because they're good. But if you set the standard that you have to play games, that you have to be on the field to move up or down the rankings, then what are we doing with Ohio State? We have no answer for it, except that the committee wants to make sure that Cincinnati doesn't get too close to that top four, because imagine if something crazy happens. Imagine if Ohio State does lose. Imagine if Notre Dame does get smoked by Clemson or Clemson loses. You can't let Cincinnati in the playoff, so let's move Iowa State, a two-loss team in the Big 12, up. And here's the crazy thing about Iowa State. They beat a 5-4 and four West Virginia team this weekend. It's not even as though they played some incredible, unbeatable juggernaut. They beat a decent to lousy West Virginia team. And so that part bothers me. It drives me crazy. Why are we punishing Cincinnati? And forget about punishing Cincinnati. Why are we moving up a team that isn't even that good ahead of them? I like Iowa State. If you listen to this show every week, I pick them to make the Big 12 championship game in the preseason. Hate to brag. Kind of nailed that one. No big deal. Do it all the time. But I don't even want to take credit for this one because they don't deserve to be number seven. And you can see so obviously what the college football playoff committee is doing. They are trying to set up a scenario where in a worst case deal where or Ohio State takes a loss or Texas A&M takes a loss that the Big 12 champ will now be in play. Because if Iowa State wins, well, you got to move them up. They're in the Big 12. Look at, they're at number seven. Look at, look at Iowa State, little Iowa State. And then, of course, if they lose to Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship game, well, Oklahoma just beat the number seven team in the country. We got to move them up. And while we're on the subject of schools and teams that uh, are being not given enough credit for, how about Coastal Carolina? So I talked about Coastal Carolina on last episode, on Monday's episode, And what they did against BYU was incredible. Awesome win. I'm not going to say they dominated BYU. BYU was driving with a chance to win the game late. But they just beat a top 15 team at home, big game, college game day, 
all that good stuff. And as I said on Saturday's show, if you actually just look at the resumes, there is no doubt that Coastal Carolina is a top 10 team. Now, I'm not saying Coastal Carolina is better than Alabama or better than Florida. Heck, for that matter, I'm not saying they're better than Georgia. I'm not saying they're better than anybody. But what I am saying is, if we have set the standard that resumes matter, that wins and losses matter, here's the facts. Coastal Carolina has a better resume than about two or three teams ahead of them, including the team I just mentioned, Georgia. Georgia's sitting here at 6-2 and two with blowout losses to the only two good teams that they've played all year, Florida and Alabama. How about Miami sitting at 8-1, and one, got blown out by the only good team they've played all year, Clemson. And here's Coastal Carolina who beat a team that's better than either team beat. And yet they're buried behind Georgia, behind Miami, behind a two-loss Oklahoma team. How about this? That same Iowa State team that's in at number seven, they lost to Louisiana. Louisiana has one loss all season. You know who Louisiana lost to? Coastal Carolina. And so all I want to say is this. And by the way, I had a bunch of Georgia fans in my mentions. You don't know what you're talking about. You, do you even watch football? Yeah, bro, I watch football. And wins and losses on the field are supposed to matter. I'm not saying that if Coastal Carolina played Georgia tomorrow, Coastal Carolina would win by three touchdowns. I'm not even saying they would win at all. What I am saying, though, is that it's absolute nonsense. And if we're going to argue that resumes matter, that wins and losses matter, that we're just going to move Coastal Carolina below Georgia, below Miami, frankly, below Oklahoma that has two losses, we're going to move Coastal Carolina below them based on who they are and where they play and who they play against. Their win against Louisiana is better than anything Iowa State's done. You know how I know? Because Iowa State lost to Louisiana. And so, yes, I'm fired up, and it's the middle of the night, and my neighbors are probably going to kill me, but I I had to get this off my chest because I know uh, Ohio State-Michigan is the biggest story, but, like, man, these committee rankings are just complete and utter nonsense. And what I said on Twitter on Uh, Tuesday night is what I stand by. If this is just a beauty pageant, which it is, because there's no justifiable reason for Ohio State to be in at number four, other than that we really liked them in the preseason, they're a really big brand, they're going to bring really good TV ratings, and oh, by the way, um, you know, (laughs) they're going to bring a bunch of fans to whatever stadium they get to play in if fans are allowed. That's the only reason Ohio State's number four. So if you're going to say this is a beauty pageant, if you're going to say it's about the biggest brands and the biggest names, then just say it. But why are we going through the fake charade of, of ranking a group of five teams when they have no shot? Why are we punishing Cincinnati and moving them down when Ohio State has played two games in the last month, is going to be two for five after they don't play Michigan this week? Why are we dropping Cincinnati but not Ohio State? Why are we not giving Coastal Carolina the credit that they deserve? It makes no sense. It's absurd, it's stupid, and man, you can obviously hear in my voice how frustrated I am, but like I had to get that off my chest. Is You guys know me, if, if I thought... The, the narrative was nonsense. If I thought it was silly or didn't make sense or whatever, I would just call a spade a spade. But I think the narrative is accurate. I think the system is rigged against the small schools. And like I said, if they just have no shot, 
that's fine. Let's just say they have no shot. Let's go ahead. Let's take them out of the rankings. Let's not pretend to put Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina in these rankings and pretend they have an actual shot to jump Ohio State. Since 1917, uh, you know, over uh, 100 uh, years. Texas a. Shout out to whoever, all of you who may have been alive when that it's happened. Stupid. I'm guessing it's, it's probably nobody listening BS to this show. Narrative. But it's been a long time. Podcast, and it's, it's, it's been a long time. Car, so this was both a surprising piece of news and I had to talk about it. And also not surprising because if you really go back to really frankly last week on this Story, show. Not only in college we football, talked about Kirk Herb Street's right commentary that is, about of course, Michigan would Michigan wave their white flag? Fights. Would they fake it? Would they try to get out of it? A day later, they cancel the Maryland game, and of course, on Tuesday, they cancel the Ohio State game. Before we get into the ramifications of, for both sides, I do want to say very quickly: if you want to come in with the hot take that Harbaugh and Michigan are ducking Ohio State. This ain't the place, man. This ain't the place. You know that I will call out a school, a program, a coach, a team, an administration that I think is ducking an opponent. I thought Florida State did that against against Clemson. That is not the case with Michigan. Michigan, according to Bruce Feldman, had upwards of 45 players that would not be eligible to play in this game because of the fact that they either had COVID, contact tracing, injuries, whatever. Um, and you can make fun of Jim Harbaugh. You can make fun of Michigan all you want. I know he's been a punching bag. You can't go play your rival with 40 players uh, in a game of this magnitude. And you can't certainly go play your rival with 40 players when you have not practiced in close to two weeks. The last time they practiced was uh, November 27th. So we're talking about a solid you know, nine, 10 days from when we are recording and almost two full weeks by the time that they would take the field against Ohio State. And so it sucks. It's a disappointment. It is a bummer. Um, and yeah, like I just think it sucks. And like again, I know Harbaugh's a punching bag. He wanted to play. He wanted to be part of this rivalry. This rivalry defined him as a player. It defines him as a coach in a negative way. But you could tell he wanted to play even in watching the press conference where he was very quick to point out that it was the doctors who made the final decision on this one, not him, not his players. But again, you can't blame the doctors either. And you know darn well that if you could blame the doctors, and if I, if I thought there was blame to be placed, I would place it on the doctors. But I think it is one of those deals. It is the reality that we live in. I've spent all year talking about the rules and regulations in college football. I don't have to like them, but that is the deal. That is the circumstance that we are involved in. And because of it, we will have no Michigan-Ohio State. On top of the fact that it is disappointing, it also creates some crazy big-picture ramifications for both programs going forward into not only the next few weeks, but potentially the next few years. Uh, when you start with Ohio State, I think the big topic is what we have been talking about for three or four weeks now, if not really since the Big Ten decided to come back, which is that now I, uh, Ohio State, as I record here on Tuesday night, does not qualify for the Big Ten Championship game. And for people who have forgotten, if you have, I don't know how you could. I've talked about it on every episode the last four or five episodes. But you needed uh, the Big Ten when they decided to come back. They were playing eight conference games and then also uh, a conference championship weekend where everybody plays on the final weekend. But that in those first eight weeks, you needed a minimum of six games to qualify for the conference championship game. Ohio State, as of right now, as I'm recording, will not be able to qualify because they have only played five games. Uh, Michigan was canceled this week. Uh, they had to cancel against Illinois a few weeks ago. And I want to say it was Maryland maybe a few weeks ago that canceled on them. And so right now they're at five games and they fall below the threshold. 
So what could happen going forward? I don't think that as I'm recording, and I keep saying as I'm recording, and I just want you to understand, I'm saying as I'm recording because this is a very fluid situation, and I do think things are going to change. I think rules are going to be uh, bended, adjusted, altered to get Ohio State into the conference championship game. But as I speak here, there is a big picture problem for Ohio State, and that is very simply that they do not qualify. Now, there are a couple things that could happen. The first is that the Big Ten could, in theory, find another opponent within the Big Ten for Ohio State. They have not, I don't believe, done that up to this point this season. In other words, if a team loses a game because of a canceled game, um, they do not find opponents that that might also have lost the game. The Pac-12, to their credit, has done that. The SEC has certainly adjusted schedules for teams that are healthy enough to play. The Big Ten, to date, has not done that. And I don't know that this is the week to start because, as I record here, there really is nobody that's available to play. The closest that could happen is Purdue is currently shut down because of positive COVID tests. And in theory, you would just take who Purdue is playing and put them with Ohio State. There is just, of course, one problem, which is that the team that Purdue was supposed to play is Indiana. Indiana has, of course, already played Ohio State, and it doesn't really make sense to put them up against each other for a second time. So that's the first option is just the possibility that they find another opponent, that games get jiggled or altered or reshuffled. But I also do think you have to look at it from the Big Ten's perspective, and I do wonder if that's really a feasible option for this conference. The very simple fact is Ohio State is hanging by a thread here in the college football playoff conversation, which we'll get into in a minute. And I don't know that on two days' notice you want to throw a game on their schedule that they weren't anticipating. This isn't BYU as an independent making a case for the college football playoff. Ohio State is on the right side of this thing right now. They just got to go ahead and win every other game on their schedule. And right now, the only game left on their schedule is against Northwest or is against Wisconsin next week. You would think it would be Wisconsin uh, because as of right now, they aren't eligible for the, S- or for the Big Ten championship game. So it doesn't really make sense to try and force a game onto the schedule for a team that's in good position to make the college football playoff. Of course, the other option within the Big Ten is to just put them in the conference championship game, right? And I think increasingly it's looking more and more like that is going to happen. Uh, uh, You know, Barry Alvarez talked about it a few days ago, which I talked about on this podcast. Other people have commented on it publicly. And heck, I'll give this guy credit. Ward Manuel, the the athletic director at Michigan, even said that he would be in favor of letting uh, Ohio State into the Big Ten championship game because he doesn't believe that you should punish Ohio State when they lost two games that were completely out of their control against Maryland and against Michigan. And so realistically, I do think that by the end of the day Wednesday, the ADs are talking Wednesday morning, that we could find out that the Big Ten has altered their rules to allow Ohio State in the conference championship game. And I think you could argue, oh, it's favoritism to Ohio State and it's unfair to Ohio State. And I actually did talk about this a little bit last week. But what I would also say, because, uh, but when I say I talked about it last week, it was because Nebraska tried to get a rule altered earlier in the season and the Big Ten said no. Um, but I bring it up because I do think that uh, it's frankly would be the right decision if the Big Ten decided to do this. I think the bottom line is, as Ward Manuel said, uh, it is not Ohio State's fault two games got canceled. I would add it was a dumb rule to begin with. I talked about that on a previous show. And maybe most importantly, uh, we've changed all 
all kinds of rules in college football this year, right? We used to have all these out-of-conference games. Now they're gone. We used to have, uh, you know, however many league games. Now we have more. We used to, uh, you know, never schedule games on short notice. We did it with BYU Coastal Carolina last week. And so I do think the reality remains that Ohio State uh, will be eventually allowed into the Big Ten championship game because it seems like everybody in the Big Ten realizes, hey, this was a really dumb rule. Hey, let's not penalize this team. And hey, they're the best chance that we have to get into the college football playoff. And if they make the college football playoff, that's money for everybody in this league. Now, I would also say that what I think is the more interesting conversation that I don't think anyone is talking about right now is just the idea of what Ohio State's resume, independent of what happens these next few weeks, is going to look like going forward. Even if they go ahead and, and get into the Big Ten Championship game and they beat Northwestern, we are talking about ultimately a 6-0 and Ohio State team that if they beat Northwestern would in theory be the Big Ten champion and would in theory be undefeated. But I mean 6-0 and with their best win over Indiana, I don't know that that's a really, really, really strong resume especially when you're comparing it to potentially an 8-1 and one Texas A&M team that played nine conference games in the SEC and went 8-1 and one over that stretch. And so to me, that is going to be a fascinating dynamic going forward, is not only does the, will the Big Ten be willing to change the rules for Ohio State, but on top of that, what does it mean going forward uh, for their playoff conversation? Because I don't think their place in this four-team playoff is as concrete set in stone as everybody else does and I would add that's on top of the idea that nothing crazy happens like say uh, Florida upsets Alabama in the SEC championship game I just don't think Ohio State is as set in stone as people think they are and I do think they need to get in as many games I do hope that the Big Ten adjust this rule so they can play Northwestern heck I'd be down to let them play a game this weekend I just don't know if it is going to happen uh, and, and, and I think it should, frankly, if the Big Ten can. Last little thought on Ohio State, we'll get to Michigan. Uh, I will just say, I cannot be the person to claim that I came up with this idea. The first person I actually saw it was Casey Smith from Barstool Sports, friend of mine. She was actually on this podcast years ago. But Casey brought up the idea of, well, wait a second now. Texas A&M, their game against Ole Miss was canceled. Ohio State, their game against Michigan was canceled. Uh, why don't we just go ahead and get those two teams together? And I'll just say, first of all, shout out to Casey. She was the first one to say it. I've seen other people pick up on it. Stu Mandel from The Athletic, Ross Dellinger, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, talked about it a little bit on his Twitter feed. And I'll say this, I am all in favor of it because I just think this is a weird year. It's a bizarre year. And this is a year, it really reminds me in both football and basketball of kind of why all these teams and players and coaches got into sports in the first place, Right. When I watch college basketball right now, I see a bunch of teams that it just feels like you show up at the gym with my five against your five, and we're going to play. doesn't matter if it's empty. doesn't matter if it's a home gym, neutral gym. If we traveled middle of the country to play each other, we're just going to hoop. And that's kind of what college football has felt like this year, where on short notice, we get a Coastal Carolina BYU, and it's kind of just drawing stuff up in the sand and figuring, out, figuring things out as it goes. So I think it'd be awesome if we got Ohio State versus uh, Texas A&M. I also don't think it's going to happen for the reasons that I said. One, both conferences were committed to playing league-only games this season. Nebraska, again, tried to duck those rules by scheduling a game earlier this season when one of their Big Ten games was canceled, got shot down. So it would seem extremely hypocritical to let Ohio State play an out-of-conference game. 
But then I would also add to this fact is that there is a lot to lose for both of these programs, right? And it isn't the same as Ohio State or uh, say BYU trying to even get into the conversation of the college football playoff. Ohio State or Texas A&M, if they played, would eliminate each other from the playoff race. And while I think it'd be good for TV, it'd be good for college football, I think the players would be down. I think the powers that be would not be in favor of it because every team that makes the playoff gets millions of dollars, which is split among all these leagues and schools. And I don't know that specifically the Big Ten would be keen on their only playoff chance getting knocked out of the playoff conversation before they even get to the Big Ten championship game. So I am in favor of Texas A&M, Ohio State. I just don't think it's going to happen. Really quickly, as it pertains to Michigan, um, I do think it's fair to ask, with this game canceled, I do think it's fair to ask, is this the last time, was Tuesday's press conference the final time that we will see Jim Harbaugh in a Michigan uh, hat, shirt, garb, attire, whatever you want to call it? Because it's feeling like it's kind of go time between Michigan and Ohio, between Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. And I'll give myself a little credit. I'll give myself a little pat on the back. But if you listen to Monday's show, I told you that what was going on behind the scenes at Michigan, and it was basically reported exactly as I told you on Monday. Michigan and Jim Harbaugh are in a weird situation where he is on a one-year contract. You cannot bring him back on a one-year contract uh, because of the fact that you have to recruit. The 2021 class is set to sign here in a couple weeks. You can't recruit the 2022 class if they don't know who the head coach is going to be. And so it's almost an impossible situation where you either have to give Jim Harbaugh an extension in what is by far his worst season, or you have to let him pursue NFL options. And as I told you on Monday's episode, Michigan did offer or was in the process of offering Jim Harbaugh an extension. And it's not an extension in the traditional way you think of an extension, right? Like when we hear extension, we think like Nick Saban, we think uh, 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 Ryan Day, we think about all these guys in the, the, the prime of their careers getting an extra year added on to an already ex- existing four, five, six year contract. And this is not that case. I was told that... Um, any contract would be short. It would be an extension of two, you know, maybe three years tops. There would be a salary reduction. Um, and that's exactly what was reported. Uh, John Bacon, who has written many books about Michigan, really plugged in at that school, basically reported exactly what I said on Monday's episode, that it was an incentive-based contract, that it was short uh, two or three years, that there would be money to go out and add to his coaching staff uh, if he felt the need to, adjust the coaching staff, pay highly paid assistant coaches, but that ultimately it was what I told you. It was a short contract incentive-laden, and what I can now tell you is that when Jim Harbaugh actually got eyes on what was being offered, he was not very happy uh, because it was the way that I was explained, the way it was explained to me was that it was a, a very Michigan-friendly contract. And frankly, I don't necessarily even blame Michigan for it, um, but that it was a very Michigan-friendly contract that had a, 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 certainly a salary reduction and a very easy escape clause for the school if he continued to struggle the way that he did this past season, that Jim Harbaugh was not happy with it. And now he's got a real tough decision to make. Because I think he lo- I, I know he loves Michigan. I know he loves the university. I know he wants to be the guy to fix things. But I also think he kind of felt like it was a little bit of a slap in the face. And beyond that, there really is NFL interest from Jim Harbaugh. Also from John Bacon, John Bacon also reported this, but I've heard kind of similarly, is that John Bacon said that upwards of four different NFL teams are at the very least interested in Jim Harbaugh 
Uh, according to John Bacon, none of them have actually offered Jim Harbaugh a job, but that there is interest, right? And like that's the one thing that we have to remember. For all his struggles at the college level, Jim Harbaugh is an accomplished coach, and he is an accomplished coach at the NFL level. He has had success. He was a play or two from winning the Super Bowl with Colin Kaepernick in 2012, and that still resonates in the NFL. It might not mean squat to those of us who are college football fans that are seeing this guy get his brains beat in by Ohio State every year, but I'm just telling you from the NFL perspective, his name still carries weight. From what I've been told, uh, Chicago, which currently actually doesn't even have an opening, is very interested. Never forget Jim Harbaugh actually played in Chicago. Mike Ditka is still very much plugged in uh, at with that organization, that, that team, that city, that him and Mike Ditka have a great relationship. I've also been told that the Jets, look, the Jets are going to get the number one pick. They're going to get Trevor Lawrence, and they don't want to bring in another, you know, freaking offensive coordinator, fired head coach, like whatever, for Trevor Lawrence. They want to bring in an accomplished guy that has won at the NFL level and that they're interested in Jim Harbaugh. I can't speak to the other jobs that are available. I can't speak to the Lions. I can't speak to the Texans. Obviously, I think the Texans would be of interest to anyone because Deshaun Watson is awesome. Um... I think the Chargers is going to open up. I don't know about Harbaugh on that one. He was, of course, in California prior to coming to Michigan. And so the point I'm trying to make is that there is real NFL interest and intrigue for Jim Harbaugh at the NFL level. So with that being said, I just think it's fascinating to see what happens. Now, I already talked about it on last episode, so I won't really get into it. But their bottom line remains, it makes sense for both sides for either thing to happen. From Michigan's perspective... The short contract makes sense so that Jim Harbaugh can both sign the 2021 class, which is currently a top 10 class in the country, which does matter. It's a loaded recruiting class. You get them signed. You bring Harbaugh back for another year. You let him get started on 2022. Here's the other thing, though. It also gives them a year to kind of feel out who might be available if Harbaugh does struggle next year and does, uh, you know, really does pursue the NFL offer, right? Because if you think about coming into this year, we could criticize Jim Harbaugh for a lot of things. Nobody thought they were going 2-4, and four, and nobody thought it would get this bad this fast, and there was no reason for Michigan to truly believe that they were in the middle of uh, you know, a potential coaching search by the end of the season. So if you bring Jim Harbaugh back, you keep a top 10 ranked recruiting class, they sign in a couple weeks, and you have an opportunity to evaluate, was this a one-year aberration weird thing with COVID, or was it just the way the program is trending? In which case, you move on from Jim Harbaugh after next season and you have a year to vet out candidates. On the flip side, for Jim Harbaugh, it makes sense because um, you know he can come back, prove that this year was a fluke, prove that whatever you want to say about him, he was pretty successful in those first five years, uh, and potentially set himself up for the next wave of NFL coaching jobs. But I also think you would have to consider the fact that, one, he'd be taking a discounted contract, and two, you, know, you have another bad year, you put yourself in worse position to get an NFL job. But I'm just telling you, it's fascinating. I have no great feel for what's going to happen. I don't believe that Jim Harbaugh, as of today, knows what he wants to do. But it is a fluid situation, and it is definitely worth monitoring. All right, last little topic before we get to college basketball. Uh, And that's another coaching topic. And it is Urban Meyer in Texas. And it was something that was kind of floating around all of last week uh, into this week. And I was really looking for the right time to talk about it. But... Last week, we just had a lot of college hoops, and and on Monday, we had a lot to react to, and so I never did get to it, and on Monday afternoon, we got confirmation that both there were at least peripheral conversations involving the two sides, and that Texas 
uh, was willing to basically break the bank for Urban Meyer, and he said thanks, but no thanks. And as I sit back and I look at it and I read and I read the tea leaves and I talk to a few people that I know who know Urban Meyer, I really do think it's fair to ask, will we ever see Urban Meyer on a college football coaching sideline again? And I think the answer is frankly, probably no. Uh, When I look at this in the bigger picture, first of all, for the people who missed this story, um, you know, Texas has been Texas the last 15 years or so since Mac Brown got them to the national championship game in 2009. So I guess it's closer to 10 years. But Tom Herman's been there, and like it's pretty clear at this point that Tom Herman isn't the answer. Now, he hasn't been as bad as many people think, but I wouldn't exactly call him good either. He's 30-17 and 17 overall as the head coach at Texas, and 10 of those wins came in the 2018 season. That was the famous Sam Ellinger, Texas is back. Well, no, you're not. First of all, Texas lost four games that season, so it's not as though Texas was even a juggernaut in that one particular season. But beyond that, it's clear that um, you know, Tom Herman's probably not the guy, right? It's, it's year four, they're six and three, but they have a couple bad losses, no real great wins. Um, and I think it's like fair to just say like he's probably not the guy. And so as this season has played out, there's been some issues off the field. There's been some issues on the field. The team stinks off the field. There's divide. If you remember, there was controversy about the players not singing the fight song at the end of the game. And so the powers that be at Texas kind of were like, he ain't the guy. Let's at least go barking up that Urban Meyer tree. And so they did. And the report came out on Monday. Chip Brown, who's as plugged in at Texas as anybody, basically said like, yeah, Texas did give Urban Meyer a call. There were conversations. And Texas offered him upwards of $10 million a year. And that Urban Meyer said no. According to Chip uh, Brown, there was no official offer, but that was essentially what was on the table. And so when you're talking about Texas, when you're talking about Urban Meyer, when you're talking about the chance to revive a third program into a national championship contender, and Urban Meyer says no, that leads me to believe that he will never coach again. Now, what I would say is a couple things. One, he is young, and times can change, right? He is still relatively young for a college football coach. If you look at his overall, uh, you know, kind of, Uh, everything. He is uh, 56 years old, excuse me. He will obviously be 57 this uh, coming year. And for comparison's sake, like, dude, you know, Nick Saban is 68 years old, 69 years old, just turned 69 years old. He's 12 years older than uh, than Urban Meyer. And so on the one hand, like, Urban Meyer is really young. On the other hand, this is a guy that we kind of know the backstory um, he had all sorts of health issues at both stops. He literally almost died on the field at Florida when they were playing Alabama in that SEC championship game in Tim Tebow's senior year. He leaves Florida. He goes to Ohio State. It comes out that he has a brain cyst, that there was operations, that he had brain surgery. And so, like, the health things are real. And I think his family kind of looked him in the face and said, like, dude, we're not doing this again. I've talked to at least two people who have told me that Urban Meyer's wife was basically like, dude, you want to go coach again, you're going to do it as a single man because I ain't coming with you. We're getting a divorce and I'm moving on because I'm not going to watch you die on the football field. And so I think when you factor that in, when you factor in that he is now a grandfather, uh, his oldest daughter, the famed Nikki, uh, Nikki, uh, Nikki Meyer, who played volleyball at Georgia Tech, uh, her husband is actually uh, now an assistant coach at Ohio State. Like I think he kind of realizes, like, I got a pretty good deal. And maybe it's just time for me to move on to the next chapter of my life. 
Now, you never say never, and things can change. And certainly, every time a big job opens up, uh, he is, we're going to hear his name at least for these next couple years, right? Like, at some point, USC is going to open up. Like, I know they're 3-0, and and they're, they're taking the Pac-12 by storm or whatever, but they're not very good. Eventually, Clay Helton will be gone, and USC will bark up the Urban Meyer tree. Uh, Texas, whenever they do get rid of Tom Herman, will again probably try at least one more time to bark up the Urban Meyer tree, and you just never know. Ryan Day could go to the NFL. Something could happen in the SEC. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think that, that we, we have to come to accept that it's probably not going to happen. And the reason I believe it's probably not going to happen is first, the stuff that I just talked about, the health reasons, the health issues, the fact that he's a grandfather, the fact that his family is comfortable in Columbus. I know it was talked about that he has a bar there and he's right down the road from his grandkids and all that stuff. But I also think you also have to look at what he turned down, which is Texas. If you're going to get back into this and you're going to be Urban Meyer, this is about the best job that you can ask for. And I know that people make fun of Texas and, oh, Texas is back, but they're not really back. Like, I get it. I I make fun of them too. They're hard not to. But at the same time, it is still a great job. We know the recruiting's through the roof. We know the talent in the area is through the roof. And the conference is kind of there for the taking, right? Like, all due respect to Lincoln Riley, I think he's a really, really good coach. At the national level, his teams don't compete. They've been to four college football playoffs at Oklahoma. They're 0-4. The last two games have been blowouts against Alabama and LSU. And if there was ever a time to go to Texas, it's now. Baylor's down. TCU's down. West Virginia's in a rebuild. Iowa State is playing for a Big 12 championship. And that's no disrespect to Matt Campbell, but it speaks to where this conference is. Never, 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 never should Iowa State be better than Texas, be better than Oklahoma, and this year they were. They beat both of them. And so to me, I just feel like this was a plum opportunity for Urban Meyer, and you're offering him $10 million a year, and he said no? Well, what would get him out of retirement? And the answer to me just might be nothing. I really do think we have to kind of accept that Urban Meyer might be done as a candidate for college football head coaching jobs. Finally, I'd say with Texas, I think if you're a Texas fan listening... I think you just got to realize the fact that you're probably stuck with Tom Herman for another year. And Chip Brown reported this, but it was kind of the same thing that everybody was talking about last week, is that, yes, if you can get Urban Meyer, you pay him whatever, and you raise the funds however much you have to 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 get rid of Tom Herman. But now that Urban Meyer is not coming, you're kind of put in the same position as Michigan if Jim Harbaugh leaves in the NFL, which is like, where the heck do you go from here? Urban Meyer said no. I know that Matt Campbell would maybe be a candidate. I know that other guys would maybe be a candidate. But at this point, the the consensus seems to be Texas is probably going to finish either 6-3 or 7-3, depending on if they get their game in against Kansas this week. And Tom Herman would be owed $14 million. And when you add in his coaching staff, $25 million in, in, in buyout money that you would owe that staff. Now, that's not a big deal if you're going to get Urban Meyer. But if you're going to get somebody else that isn't a home run like Urban Meyer, you might just want to keep Tom Herman for another year and see if he can keep things going in the right direction. Now, I would say I don't know what it means for Tom Herman. I wouldn't be very happy if I was him, knowing that you were offering my job to somebody else, let alone my former boss. But I'm just, I just think we're in a scenario where Urban Meyer isn't coming, and whether Texas fans want to admit it or not, uh, Tom Herman is probably going to be back next year, and it is going to be oh so fun to kind of see what happens with that situation where Tom Herman uh, is coaching one, knowing that he's not only coaching for his job, but that they tried to give it to somebody else. All right, uh, fun segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, busy day in college football. Uh, But 
We did have a busy, busy, busy night of college basketball, and so I do want to get to that. Obviously, we'll talk that Duke-Illinois game, the North Carolina-Iowa game. More coming up, but first, I'm going to go ahead and take a quick, quick, quick break. All right, everybody. Uh, I am back, uh, and as usual, the football segment went long, but I will say in my defense, I know I talk a lot, so forgive me, but I also think it was a very busy day in college football, busier than I was certainly anticipating when you look at the Michigan-Ohio State game being canceled and me just going bananas to lead the show about the lousy college football playoff rankings. Uh, definitely got under my skin, but let's transition to basketball. Fun night of hoops. I hope you enjoyed the night of hoops on Tuesday, by the way, because Wednesday's slate is very slim after both Virginia and Michigan State was canceled as well as Louisville-Wisconsin. And so a quiet slate on Wednesday, but a great slate on Tuesday. Three great games. Let's talk about them. And let's start uh, with what I tried to tell you last week. And that is that Duke stinks. I tried to tell you. Everybody tried to make the Michigan State game last week out to be some big signature win for Duke, for Michigan State. Look at them going to Cameron and beating Duke. And if you listen to this show, I came on and said point blank, I'm sorry. That wasn't a signature win for Michigan State. It was fine. They were okay. It was nothing to write home about. Good for them. They got a win at Cameron Indoor. But to me, the game last week against Michigan State was more about Duke not being good than Michigan State being really good. And that was confirmed on Tuesday of this week when Illinois went into Cameron and again beat that behind final score 83-68 to in a game that frankly wasn't even that close. Illinois got up 14-2 to two to start the game, and it was basically double figures for the rest of the way. I think if the, the, the game was refed fairly, I don't want to say fairly, but if the game was refed better, I think it would have even been worse. But if you watch the second half of the game, everything was being called a foul and players stopped being aggressive, where you could tell Illinois just wanted to get out of there and get out of there with the W. And so I think it actually could have been much worse than it was. Uh, but Duke lost, and I, I just don't think they're very good right now. And when I look at them in the big picture, ironically, I do think, frankly, their problems are pretty similar to Kentucky's. I don't believe they have a true point guard right now. They have kind of almost an identical situation in Kentucky where they have a veteran who's kind of best served as a role player, a backup. His name's Jordan Goldwire. And they have a freshman who's not quite ready, uh, a kid by the name of Jeremy Roach. Jeremy Roach actually played pretty well on, uh, on Tuesday night. But again, it was late in the game when the game was over, when it was kind of a pickup game, when nobody was really playing defense. And so I don't take too much of that. Not to say he's a bad player, not to say he can't play at Duke, but I just don't think he's there yet. And I think when I look at Duke, it's just so pronounced watching them. And you know that through the years, I've had my moments where I'm critical of Duke. I've obviously had my moments where, um, you know, where, where I think they're fantastic. I think there was one episode late last year where Nick Coffey and I talked about even last year, not the year before when they had Zion, but last year with Trey Jones, Vernon Carey, and Cassius Stanley, were they the favorites to win the national championship? Obviously, we'll never know. It didn't happen. But I bring that up to say that I think I've been fair to Duke. I, th I don't think I go out of my way to criticize them. Uh, but I, I just don't think they're very good right now, and I think you can see that they really do miss Trey Jones. I did reference Kentucky a minute ago, but at least Kentucky last year had multiple ball handlers, Ashton Hagens, Tyrese Maxey, um, uh, Emmanuel Quickly, and so it wasn't as pronounced as it was with Duke, where everything went through Trey Jones, where everything was about him, where he was the heart and soul of the team, ACC Player of the Year, and now that he's gone, there's a gaping void. And so when I look at Duke... 
I just think this is the reality of who they are right now. They are a team no different than a lot of the teams in college basketball in that they just, I don't think they know who they are. I don't think they know how the pieces fit. And I don't know if they think they know what to do going forward. I thought it was really interesting during the game, Jay Billis and John Shambi, the, the broadcasters were kind of talking about, you know, talking to Coach K. And Coach K said, like, point blank, like, dude, you know, we had a bunch of guys that we thought could do th- certain things. And then when we got them into games, all of a sudden we saw that maybe they weren't quite as advanced as we thought they were. And now you know me. If, if I thought it was justified, I would criticize Coach K. But I think he's doing dealing with what a lot of coaches are dealing with in that he just doesn't know his personnel. He's got a lot of new guys, and the new guys that the guys that are not new, he's trying to figure out how to use them on the fly. Now the big question with them is no different than any team that's struggling, whether it is I keep going back to Kentucky because they're the, the other one that was in the preseason top 10 and just isn't very good right now. It is how do you get better? How do you fix it? And with Duke, I just don't know. Because first of all, again, you have major inexperience at point guard. And then you look at the rest of the roster and it's kind of this weird jumbled set of pieces that don't really fit together. Their two best players are probably a kid named Matt Hurt, big, tall, skinny, white kid who actually is playing pretty well. I, you know, I think everybody's kind of had their Matt Hurt jokes in the past, but he actually played pretty well on Tuesday night and has played pretty well all year. The problem is their second best player is a freshman named Jalen Johnson, who's almost an identical player. Both of them are, are about 6'9", 6'10". They're good around the rim. They got a little 15-foot jumper. Jalen Johnson's a little bit more athletic, but neither of them really create their own offense. Everybody needs, you know, both of them need somebody else to create for them. And so when I look at Duke, when you don't have a point guard and your two best players are kind of the same player, neither can create offense, I think it creates problems. Beyond that, it's a bunch of freshmen, it's a bunch of role players, it's a bunch of guys that have never been asked to do what they are being asked to do this season. Uh, There's also a player named Wendell Moore, a wing, who for whatever reason just can't figure it out. And so when I look at Duke in the bigger picture, I'm just going to say it, man. I just look at them and I, I, I don't know what to make of them going forward. And I think in the bigger picture, when I look at the rest of the ACC, there's some really good teams in the ACC. Um... You know, North Carolina, who we'll talk about in a minute, I think is awesome. I think they're much better than last year, and I think they're going to surprise some people when they get into league play. Louisville, I will give them credit. I did it on last episode, too, or last week, I should say. Louisville's got some guys now. The Carleek Jones kid, um, excuse me, Carleek Jones kid who is a grad transfer is a really good player. They got some freshmen playing really well. Now, they're going to be challenged going forward. But they're a good team, Louisville. I think they're more impressive than I thought they would be. We know Virginia is going to be there. We know some of these other teams will be there. I'll say this for the ACC. I know it wasn't a great night for them in the Big Twelve, uh, cha- or the Big Ten Challenge, but the middle of the pack this year in the ACC is much deeper than it was last year. I think Miami's pretty good. Clemson's pretty good. Although they didn't show it on Tuesday, Virginia Tech is pretty good. I think Syracuse can be pretty good. And so when I look at Duke, I'm not saying they're going to finish 8th, ninth, or 10th, but I think they got a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to figure it out. And I think they have a lot of the same problems that a lot of teams have in college basketball this year. Don't really know how their pieces fit. Didn't really have time to figure it out. And here's the scary part if you're a Duke fan. They don't really have a schedule where, where things get any easier. They do have one pretty easy game this week. They play Charleston Southern uh, later this week. But then after that, it's back into ACC play. They basically got two crappy teams, Charleston Southern and Gardner-Webb, and then it's all ACC from here on out. 
And so I think it'll be fascinating. I think it'll be interesting to watch. But I'm just telling you point blank. I don't think Duke's very good right now. And I don't think it's getting much better anytime soon. Really quickly, I do want to talk about Illinois. Um, and there's nothing to say other than they're freaking awesome. Like, they're really, really, really good. And it's funny because Illinois, you know how I just said a minute ago, I talked about how everyone wanted to make the Michigan, Michigan State, oh my goodness, it's a signature win. And I was like, man, it's not a signature win. Duke just stinks. Well, ba- well Illinois, when they played Baylor, was kind of the exact opposite. Illinois lost to Baylor, and everybody said good things about Baylor, as they should have, but everyone like kind of tried to tear down Illinois, and it was weird to me, and it was weird to watch, and I kind of sat there and saw it, and I was like, why are you guys trying to tear down Illinois? They're awesome. They just played a better team. Like sometimes, you know, this is the crazy thing, and this is what drives me crazy about some of these quote-unquote analysts in college basketball. They don't understand that sometimes two bad teams play and somebody's just got to win. It doesn't mean that the winner is any good. And sometimes two really good teams play and one team has to lose and it doesn't mean that team is bad. And that was what I saw from Illinois last week. And that was what I saw on Tuesday night with Illinois where they were just a significantly better team. By the way, I hope you're following me on Instagram, by the way, because I gave out Illinois plus four as my best bet. And that was the lock of the century. That was the bank heist of the century. Easy breezy. Living my best life over here. But when it comes to Illinois, listen, I think they're one of the most talented teams in the country. I did not freak out in that Baylor game, which, by the way, was a one-possession game with 10 minutes to go. They played the number two team in the country really tough for about 34, 35 minutes before Baylor pulled away. But here's the scary part if you're a fan of another Big Ten team watching Illinois on on Tuesday. They didn't play anything close to their best game. Like, that was my biggest takeaway for Illinois is that they beat Duke at Duke, and I know there's no fans, so it's a little bit different, but they beat it by 15. Like I said, it was basically double digits the entire game. I didn't think they played their best game. Their best player, Io DeSumo, did lead them in scoring, but it wasn't as though he had some incredible game, missed some wide-open jumpers, uh, had a few turnovers, and again, it came back down to what I said a few minutes ago, and I've said it a bunch. Most of the second half just turned into a pickup game where nobody was doing anything, nobody was running offense, and Illinois was just trying to get out of there with a win before they got too many damn fouls called because the refereeing was terrible. Um, but Iodesuma was fine, but he wasn't incredible. Kofi Coburn, their big guy down low. By the way, shout out to Bill Walton who called Iodesumu and Kofi Coburn uh, the new Shaq and Kobe uh, a few days ago. It wasn't during this game, but it was during a different one. But the kid Kofi Coburn, he was fine, but he missed a few dunks. He wasn't as forceful as he could be. I would argue Illinois' best player on Tuesday, or their two best players really, were two freshmen, Andre Curbelo, this shifty, kind of creative little point guard who was all over the court. I thought he was the best player on the floor. And Adam Miller, who had nine points early in the game on three three-pointers. But when you look at the big picture, I don't think this was Illinois' best game. And I think that's a great sign for Illinois. I think that's a terrifying sign for the rest of the Big Ten. But if you looked at, if you watch the game, Illinois' two best players didn't play very well. They had a season-high uh, 18 turnovers, and they also committed 20 fouls. Now, again, part of that was the refs. But again, it was just one of those games where they looked so good, so convincing, so dominating. And I don't even think they ever hit fifth gear. 
So no great takeaway from Illinois, but all I'll say is just credit to them for going on the road, getting a win, and I think showing everybody just how good they are. Because I'm telling you, man, when we talk about teams that can win the national championship, that can win six straight games when it matters, I think Illinois is one of those teams. Because they have a little bit of everything. They have great guard play, three, four, five guards they can play. They have a big wing named DeMonte Williams who barely even played because of foul trouble uh, who can defend all sorts of positions and do all sorts of stuff. Um, they have shooting with the kid Trent Frazier, shooting with the kid Adam Miller, uh, a superstar by, by college standards and Io DeSumo who I think is going to be a lottery pick. Um, and they, they have toughness down low with... with uh, Kofi Coburn and the big guy, Georgie Bashanazvili. I don't know how to say his name. Forgive me, okay? I didn't practice. But the point is, they have a little bit of everything. They have nice balance. And this is just a team to watch throughout the season. They're fun. They play fast. They score. And here's the crazy part. They didn't even play anything close to their best game. And they still won at Duke, convincingly. Uh, earlier game, Iowa, North Carolina, Tuesday night. In Iowa City, where were you for the Iowa-North Carolina game? Now, this one was actually a lot like what I just said about Illinois. I don't think there was any amazing, incredible, overwhelming takeaway from this game. I just think that Iowa was kind of who I thought they were going to be. Uh, North Carolina was kind of who I thought they were going to be. And Iowa won at home against a good North Carolina team. Now, if you didn't see the game... The story of the game was this. We all know that Iowa has an All-American by the name of Luca Garza. Phenomenal player. Excellent player. Was an All-American last year. Was just about everybody's preseason national player of the year this year. Here was the scary part if you're watching and you're a fan of another team in the Big Ten. I know I just said that about Illinois, but you can be scared about more than one team in the conference, people. Um, Iowa, Luca Garza came into this game averaging 34 points a game, which I think you could say is pretty good. He was held to 16 points, including, I believe, only two in the second half, in the first half, excuse me. And he ended up as Iowa's fourth leading scorer, and they scored 93 points. And so when you talk about takeaways, when you talk about trying to figure out how all these teams fit in the national picture, I'm just going to tell you, Iowa kind of threw down the gauntlet. They kind of pulled out their you-know-what and threw it on the table and said, come look at us, we're Iowa. Because when you watch the game, the one thing that stood out they can get scoring from just about anywhere on the floor. They have a kid uh, by the name of Joe Wieskamp, who many believe, I saw Sam Vecini tweeting about it, is an NBA draft prospect. He had 19 points. C.J. Frederick had 21 points. Jordan Bohannon, great story, started last season, was injured, ended up taking a medical red shirt, finishes with 24 points. And you look at this team, and they just have balance all over the floor. They finished the game 17 for 40 from three, um, and just, they're phenomenal. And not only do they get scoring from their starters, but they get scoring off the bench as well. The kid, Jack Nungy, another guy that people are saying is a potential NBA draft prospect, average 18 points coming into today. Uh, and Joe Toussaint was their starting point guard last year who now comes off the bench. And so when I look at Iowa, there's no great takeaway other than that they scored 93 points against North Carolina on Monday night, and they did it when their best player was largely held in check. We all knew that North Carolina is big and physical down low, and for the most part, they took Luca Garza out of, their, out of this game, and everybody else stepped up. And so when I look at Iowa, and I look at, again, how they kind of fit in in the national picture, 
I think you can make a legitimate case that they might be the most dynamic offensive team in college basketball. And it sounds crazy and it sounds preposterous and all that kind of stuff. But what I would tell you is very simply this. Not only is it not just Luka Garza, they can get scoring from all five spots on the court at any given time. Like even Gonzaga, as much as I love watching Gonzaga, there's two or three players on that roster that are kind of dead spots in terms of offensively when you put them in the game. Not Iowa. All those guys can get buckets. And so I was so impressed by them. I was so impressed by what they did. And really, frankly, the first big game on their schedule, a lot of other teams have played either in the Champions Classic or uh, in Maui or whatever. And this was Iowa's first big test. So I came away really impressed. And the takeaway, I think, more than anything, is that they can get scoring from all five spots on the court. I really think they might be the most dynamic offensive team in the country. And I'll just say this, too. I'm supposed to play Gonzaga two Saturdays from now. Let's hope that game happens. Gonzaga's currently shut down, but that would make for a heck of a fun game going forward. Uh, lastly, just want to say really quick, North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina lost, um, but I'll just say this, man. I'm actually really impressed by North Carolina. And for people who forgot, North Carolina was pretty bad last year. Uh, they finished tied for last in the in the ACC, and it was kind of a collection of injuries and the wrong pieces, and Cole Anthony was in the lineup, but he was out of the lineup. This North Carolina team, I think, is pretty good. They have four guys who can play down low. Garrison Brooks, who was the best player on the team last year. Armando Baycott, who was a freshman. Then they have a kid, Dayron Sharp. If you've not seen this kid, he looks like he's about 28 years old. I mean, just big, strong, physical. Uh, and for the first time since, well, two seasons ago, because not last year, North Carolina has legitimate scoring on the wing. They got a kid named R.J. Davis and a kid named Leaky Black. Um, and I just like them. I just like them. And I'm not going to spend eight minutes talking about North Carolina, but I think because of what happened last year, everybody was a little hesitant coming into this year. They did have some returnees, but they also had some freshmen. And I think when I look at this team, I like everything that I've seen. I like the balance of older players and younger players. I like the balance of physicality and toughness with actual skill. I like the fact that they have guys who have been there before, but they have some young guys that are unafraid. And so I know they lost, and I know that they've now suffered two losses in their last two games. They're sitting at 3-2 and two overall. They did lose to Texas in the championship of the Maui Invitational. But when I look at this North Carolina team, I just see a circumstance, a situation where I'm sitting there saying like, man, I know y'all were worried and I know they're three and two and I know it'd be easy to default and say, well, it's last year all over. It's not. Stop. It's not. They're good. They're legitimate. And I'm just telling you, uh, I think they're going to be really fun to watch this season. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, again, I talked your ear off, I talked my ear off, and it's time to get out of here. Uh, I'll be back on Wednesday, plenty of college football, probably preview the weekend uh, and whatever else happens. And, of course, we will talk about whatever basketball that we do get in on Wednesday night. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, all that good stuff. Uh, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. And again, two quick reminders. If you uh, are looking for holiday gifts this season, um, 
you can go to cameo.com. That is where I do personalized uh, videos for you, your friends, your family, anybody that listens to this show or knows me or is familiar with me or likes me or I don't even care if they don't like me. I'll do a video if they don't like me. It might make it for for more fun. But cameo.com slash Aaron underscore Torres. You can find me on Cameo and also La Terrain Watches. That is tagged at the top of my Twitter feed at Aaron underscore Torres. So that is all for today's show. Uh, Time to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hayes, my voice. I will be back Thursday recapping whatever the heck happens in college football and college basketball tomorrow. Have a great day, people. I hope everybody has a great Wednesday. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.